Well, good day, friends. What a, a privilege and an honour it is for me to be here with you. I've only been in New Zealand once before. I actually came in 2009, the year I became a Christian. Uh, we came to Wellington. I was with the Australian Army rugby team on Anzac Day. And we played the New Zealand Army rugby team as a curtain raiser for the Hurricanes versus the Brumbies at the Cape Tin. And we got beat by around 78 points. So it's really wonderful to be here again. I hope you don't beat me with as such ferocity as your Defence Forces Army team. I want you to dwell on something now. Um, it's something that you'll be asked to do on Tuesday, but I, I'm not going to ask you to do it right now. And it's a number. The number is 30,000. I want you to think of that number, 30,000. Imagine how many people that would be maybe in a sports stadium or an entertainment centre. 30,000. Sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, sons, Daughters, 30,000 men and women, um, young men, young women, some people barely even old enough to vote or to drink, in fact, some younger than that, 30,000 who left this land, who, who departed voluntarily from this beautiful country to fight and would die on foreign battlefields. I'm not sure if you're aware of this number, 30,000. But since 1901, that is the number of New Zealand men and women, brothers, sisters, young men, young women, mothers, fathers, who have died. You know, we share a remarkable history. Even if you compare it to other countries around the world, our history, Australia and New Zealand, what we do share is remarkable. I want you to dwell upon how many battlefields have actually taken place on our shores in the last 100, 120 years. It's none. How many dangerous enemies have actually encroached upon our borders? It's none. And yet between us, 130,000 men and women have gone and died. They've sacrificed themselves. Why? What's the object of their sacrifice? What's the purpose? What's the reason behind why so many, 30,000 from this country alone, 100,000 from Australia, why so many would give up the most precious thing they own, the most precious thing they possess, their own lives, to go and do this? Why would they do that? What's the object of their sacrifice? Well, it's the greater good. It was peace, wasn't it? Liberation. Democracy, And there's a reason, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, there's a reason why we in New Zealand and Australia celebrate Anzac Day. It is a day of mourning, of, of uh, remembrance, of, of thinking of these lives, but it's also a day of celebration. Why? Because the object of the sacrifice was such a beautiful thing. The object of the sacrifice was worthy. The object of the sacrifice was something that we understand. Good people dying for other good people. Good people dying for a greater reason. Do you think the people of Germany celebrate the sacrifice of the soldiers of World War II? Do you think that if you go to Germany during the middle of the year, uh, they'll have parades of people dressed up in old Nazi colours, walking around and celebrating the sacrifice? No. Why? Because what they were sacrificing for, and sacrifice it was, heroic it was, but what they were sacrificing for, the object of their sacrifice was evil. It was horrific. It was awful. 
And yet for us every year, as we remember in April, what we remember is not just the people who perished, but the reason they did it. Good people dying for a a good reason, for liberation, for peace, for other good people. You know, when I was in the army, um, I remember, uh, when, particularly when Afghanistan was really going off, uh, every single week it felt like uh, you'd be going to another memorial service. Whenever a soldier would die in Afghanistan, uh, the army in Australia would go to a, you know, you'd, go, you'd all meet together in your barracks and there'd be a religious service uh, remembering the person who had died. And I, and I wasn't a Christian uh, for the majority of these. And I remember I'd go to these services and time after time after time, the minister at these services, the padre, uh, would be there and he would draw a parallel between this dead soldier and Jesus on the cross. Have you heard that before? I'm sure you have. That the image of Jesus dying on the cross is a great picture of sacrifice. In fact, the greatest picture of sacrifice. And it's got a really strong parallel with the sacrifice of the soldiers that we celebrate and remember on Anzac Day. And for me, as a, as a young army officer, that made a lot of sense. I'd go, well, that's, that's right. That's why the cross is this symbol of, of great sacrifice, of, of great affection around our culture. I mean, very recently, the Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, he's not a Christian, but just at Easter last week, he came out and said, hey, Easter is a great time of year where we remember the Aussie value I hate this. The Aussie value of mateship, of loyalty. I'm glad you're laughing. That's good. The Aussie value of mateship. That's what Jesus did on that cross. Is that right? I mean, were the chaplains and the padres and the Christian ministers at these services, are they spot on? Is there a parallel between Jesus on the cross and what happened on these battlefields on foreign shores? Is this an action of good men dying for good people? Is the cross an action of a good man dying for good people? I want you to imagine right now that there's an alien and he's in a UFO and he's just circling the earth over and over and over. And of course, he's a smart guy. He obviously decides to land in Auckland. That makes perfect sense. I mean, of all the places you'd choose to go in the world, it's right here. And he, and he arrives in Auckland. And he gets there and he approaches you as you leave this movie cinema. And he comes up to you and says, excuse me, I've been traveling around the world and I keep seeing these buildings with T's on them. What's that about? And you go, mate, that's that's a cross. And he's like, well, what's a cross? And you go, well, that's where Jesus, this guy, this guy who lived a few thousand years ago, he died upon this thing and Christians come and they, they sort of remember it and they come and they remember this guy. And this alien, he scratches his, one of his two heads, he scratches them and says, why did Jesus die? Why did this guy, why did he actually die? It's a fantastic question, isn't it? Why did Jesus die? Is it an image of a good person dying for good people? Is it an image upon which we remember also an Anzac Day, just an honourable action? Or is it actually something else? I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible says something really shocking. In fact, the Bible says something that's really horrific. The Bible says that the cross, this action of Jesus dying on the cross, has a repugnance in it. There's an ugliness at the center of it. In fact, it's a horrifying action. And it's not found in what Jesus did. It's actually found in who he did it for. 
And so this morning, all we're going to do is look at that passage of the Bible we had read out to us. And it's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And we're just going to read it together and actually see if we can uncover what the true meaning of the cross is, what the true meaning of this sacrifice is. And the first thing I want you to look at is in verse 10. And I've got a slightly different translation, but it'll come up on the screen here. It's just this little part of verse 10. It says this, For if, while we were God's enemies... And I want you to just stop and think for a second. This passage, and it's not on its own from the Bible, it's everywhere throughout Scripture, puts forward... A really full-on idea that you might not have heard, that God actually has enemies. That there are people who live on this planet who are the enemy, enemies of God. The people who are engaged in a war with God. And the question I need to ask you is, who are they? Who are these enemies of God? Is it Satanists? Is it atheists? Or maybe it's, it's Muslims or people of different religions? Maybe you think, oh, these enemies of God, obviously it's murderers and terrorists and and really bad criminals. These are the people who are enemies of God. Is that right? Do these enemies of God, do they wear a uniform? Do they have special weapons? When I was in the army, what you'd receive when you've got an enemy is a situation report called a sit-rep. And this sit-rep would detail out what the enemy were wearing, what they believed, what weapons they had, what was their mindset, where were they going, what were they doing. And so what I want us to do from the Bible is just see if we can get an accurate sit-rep of who these enemies of God are. Who are they? What do they believe? How do they act? And I really just want to do this so we can avoid them. Okay, because who wants to hang out with these enemies of God? Well, just if you flick back a couple of pages in Romans, but it'll be on the screen, you see the same writer, this guy Paul, he gives a good description of the belief system and, and the actions of these enemies of God. It's in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 18. It's a bit long, but just let me read it out for you. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what do we get from this about who the enemy of God actually is? This resume of God's enemy. Well, there's a couple of things that you notice straight away. And we won't look at it in too much detail, but just an overview picture. This enemy of God is someone who by their instinct, by their nature, does not seek him. They've actually turned away from him. They're not interested in him. They would not drift towards him, but they would drift away from him. Not only that, we hear that the enemy of God is someone who is an enemy in thought, in word, and indeed in action as well. Okay, that's how they display their enmity, their hostility against him. It's not just in actions. Now, this might surprise you. You might think an enemy of God must be someone who wag, you know, waves their fist in the air and says, God, stuff you. I hate you. Or an enemy of God is like these, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse of atheists that they, they call themselves magisterially. Okay, that these people who are hostile towards God. That's not what the Bible says at all. Being an enemy of God is found in the way you act towards him. Not just that, the way you think and the way you speak. It's what people say and do and think that indicate how they truly feel about him. And that is a problem. Why? Why does that make someone an enemy of God? 
Well, because God is not like us. Okay? God, as the creator of all things, demands the authority over people's lives. He actually wants the love of people. God wants people's hearts. He demands to be treated as king. And so when people don't do what he says, I'll give you an example. If he says, I want you to love other people more than you love yourself. And you say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to love myself more than I love anyone else. Well, you're not primarily doing a crime against other people. You're primarily rejecting him because he is demanding the authority over your life. You see, the battleground that God is fighting with his enemies is the battleground of people's souls, people's hearts. He wants people themselves. Now, you might think this is a bit outrageous. This is a bit over-demanding of God. But in many ways, it just reflects what we see in our own countries. I want you to think about it right here in New Zealand. You are already living under the authority of your country. If you do a crime, or let's flip it around. If someone does a crime against you, if someone steals your car, Well, it's not up to you to arrest that person. And if you did do a citizen's arrest, it's not up to you to keep that person locked up in your kitchen or something, okay? Or take them to court and organize a jury and then find a jail for them and find your mum to come and be the judge. That's not how it works. Why? Because whether you like it or not, you are a citizen of this country. And as a citizen of this country or a visitor or a resident in this country, you're living under the rules and laws of this country, And so when God says, I want you to love other people, and we say no, well, what we're saying to him is, I don't want to live under your authority. I don't want to live under your command. I don't want to live under your headship, your kingship. It's not meaningless the way that these enemies of God act. It's saying to God, hey, you claim to be the king, but you ain't no king. I'm in control. I'm the boss. And so for you and me, we get to see now a little bit of a clear picture about who these enemies actually are at its very core this enemy is a person who rejects god who says to him no and the bible's word for that is sin and your background might be religious particularly if you're a visitor here today and so you've got some bad connotations with that word sin as if you feel maybe people are judging you but please don't mishear me i am a sinner The word sin means rejecting God, saying no to him. And the more you read the Bible and the more you investigate this, the more it becomes very, very clear that the enemy of God, who is someone whose weapon, whose primary weapon, whose primary rifle against God is the rejection of him. That sin is not meaningless. It's not a meandering, drifting away. Sin is deliberate and sin is hostility towards him. Sin is actually saying to God, I know better than you. You saw that little video of Finding Nemo? And the little, is the fish called Nemo or the dad? The little, Nemo, stop it, what am I doing? So, the little fish, Nemo. I mean, you got the picture, didn't you? That the dad is saying, Nemo, don't do that. And Nemo swims away. He rejects him. Even though the father's got his best interest at heart, he says No. And for this enemy of God, well, in the way they think, they speak, they act. They might even say, hey, you're the creator, but truth is, I don't care. So the question is, who are these people? How can we avoid them? Are they the ones in the cinema across the hallway? Maybe they're the people serving the popcorn and the drink. How do we make sure we avoid who these people are? Well, my friends, again, I want you to listen to the passage. And I'm going to give you a couple of other Bible passages, which might give you a better picture as well. Romans 
5 verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies... And then the same author Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. The brother of Jesus, James, he writes in chapter 4 verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the same writer Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is Paul saying? What is this passage saying to us? It's very, very simple. The enemy of God is you. It's me. And maybe you're a visitor here today and said, well, I didn't come here for this. Granted, you didn't pay like you normally come to the movies, but I did not come here for this. I want a refund. I mean, most people will admit, hold on, I'm not perfect. I stuff up from time to time. I'm not always doing the right thing. I don't love God the way that I should if I believe in him. I'm not a perfect person, sure, sure, sure. But an enemy of God, how dare you? And truth be told, if you'd said that to me when I was 28 years old, before I was a Christian, if you'd told me I was an enemy of God, I was at war with God, I would have spat in your face. How dare you call me an enemy of God? And yet the truth is, if enmity with God is found not so much in blatant attitude, but in the way that we live. If enmity with God was found in a true reflection of what we say, we do, we think, then we could come to no other conclusion. If if you can imagine right now, God in heaven was your earthly father. And you treated him the same way you treat God. Can you imagine? You ignore him. You don't talk to him. When he tells you to do something, you say, get stuffed. When he tells you to do something, you say, sure, sure, sure. And then you go off and just do the complete opposite. If someone was to observe your relationship, what would they say? Would they say this is a close relationship? This is a lo- Gee, this is a loving, respectful father and, and child. By no means. And if you can't see that, please trust me. The only person you're fooling is yourself. The Bible is crystal clear. All of us, by our very nature, ignore God. We treat him... Worse than we treat our enemies. We're at war with him. The battlefield is our soul. And as bad as this is, believe it or not, that's actually not the worst part. The horrifying aspect of this is not just our hostility towards God. The worst part is that this means God is actually, he's actually at war with you. Look at verse 9. You'll see it mentioned there, God's wrath. You see, the war we fight against God has consequences. If your life didn't matter, then it wouldn't mean a thing. But it is because you are so precious to God. It is because you are so valuable to God. It is because you are so meaningful to God that what you do matters to him. And if someone treated you the way that you treat God by your nature, well, you would be furious. In fact, I want you to think of the person who has betrayed you the worst, the person who is your worst enemy, and they might not even know it maybe they're completely oblivious to it. But if someone treated you that way, how would you respond? Will you demand justice? And because God is perfect, God is perfectly just. And that means that when we die, we will be called into account for the way that we live. And we will stand there with our lives before us. And I put it to you now that if the standard is perfection, where do you fall? Well, we know that when we're honest with ourselves, 
We will be found guilty because we are guilty. And that leaves us in this hopeless state, doesn't it? I mean, we're in a war we can't possibly win. We can't overpower God. Okay, There's no possible way we can do it. There's no possible way we can make him accept us. We don't have a weapon we can use against him. It's like when the Wallabies play the All Blacks. It's hopeless. Okay, we have... No, I thought that would get some sort of traction with you guys, but I'm trying too hard. I won't do it. We can't possibly win in this war against God. I mean, I have a friend who was recently caught drink driving, well over the legal limit for the third time. And my friend, he requires his car for work. Not only does he require his car for work, he also requires his car to drive his wife around, to drive his kids to school, all that sort of stuff. If he does not have his license in his car, he will lose his job. His kids will have to start catching the bus, all this sort of stuff. So he went to court and he told the judge all of this. He said, I need my car for my work. I need my car to take my kids around, to take my wife to and fro. My wife doesn't drive. If I don't have my car, I can't do X, Y and Z. You know what the judge said to him? Guilty. Nine months, 800 bucks. I don't care. This is the third time you've done it. You have no excuse. The way you've acted, the way that you need this car for a good thing, well, it's meaningless. You see, in our hopeless situation with God, this is kind of what we try to do. We recognize God is real, that things aren't perfect. So we think, well, I'll balance out my bad some, with some good. I'll add some sugar to the sourness of my life and bang, I'll be good enough for God in that big set of scales in the sky. And without a shadow of a doubt, this is the most common response that we have towards understanding that we're enemies of God. We're like, well, I'll try and work my way into his good books. In fact, every other religion in the world is based on this. Pray this way, pray that way. Eat this, don't eat this. Cut your hair this way, don't cut your hair this way. Do this, don't do this. You do all of these things and God will give you that tick in your report card and you'll get there. And it's not just other religions. Unfortunately, many people think this is what Christianity teaches. Maybe it's what you think Christianity teaches. That you need to impress God. Not long ago, I read an article in the Washington Examiner in America with a historian called Yuval Harari. And in this interview with Harari, he was asked to give an account of Christianity's teachings. He's not a Christian, but he was asked, how would you describe the teachings of this biggest religion in the world, Christianity? And this is what he said. He said, you can think of Christianity as a video game. You have rules. And if you believe these rules and and your entire life, you follow these rules, then you win. So if you're a Christian, you do the right thing and you get points. If you sin, you lose points. If by the time you finish the game when you're dead, you have enough points, then you go up to the next level. And that is Christianity. My friends, I wonder if this is what you actually think. I wonder if this is what you believe. I guarantee you the vast majority of people in New Zealand believe this exact thing. That the way to get right with God is to do good. The way to get right with God is to counter out the bad we do. But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says because you matter. Because what you do matters. Then when you do the wrong thing, it can't just be washed away. God is the perfect judge. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. Our situation without him is hopeless. But the most crazy thing about this Bible passage is that we're going to actually read in a little bit more detail right now 
is that despite living our whole lives as enemies of God, God loves us. I want you to look at this passage, verse 6 to 8. And my friends, I, I want to put it to you now that there's no way I can convince you of anything today. I'm just a you know, bonehead from Australia. I can't convince you of a thing. But God can. And so I'm going to ask you today, as we read these incredible words from the Bible, I'm going to challenge you. Would you let God speak to your soul today through these words as he tells you exactly what he has done for you? Let me read it for you. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The first thing I want to get you to think about just here is verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us is this, in this. And you might think that's a normal sentence, but it is not. Think about who you truly are before God. You're at war with him. There is a hostility between you. Your entire life, you've been throwing the bullets of sin against him, and yet God demonstrates or proves, your version had, his own love for you in this. God loves you. Maybe you've heard that A thousand times and it means nothing. Maybe you've never heard it before in your life. My friends, understand that the love God has for you is more pure and more perfect, more unfiltered than any love we have on this earth. Take me and my wife, Sammy. I love her more than any other human being on this planet. And yet we still fight. There's still brokenness. We still do the wrong thing to each other. Me more than her, evidently. God's love for you is not like that. It is perfect and pure It is powerful and relentless that you sitting in the seat where you sit today are more loved than you ever dreamt possible by the creator of all things. And that means that even though God is angry at what we've done, even though God hates that we hate him, even though God hates that we hate him, he loves us. And his love changes everything. Look at again, verse 8. How does God prove his love? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners Christ died for us. That alien asked you the question, why did Jesus die? And you're here in a Christianish kind of country, so you say, well, I've seen it on TV before. Jesus died for our sins. But what does that mean? My friends, I, I don't know if you've ever considered this before or you've ever understood before, but Jesus was born to die. Death wasn't the end result of his life like it is for us that we're desperately trying to put off. Jesus was born with the target, the finish line, the goal mouth being death. Why? Because when Jesus walked to the cross, you looked at it last week at Easter. When Jesus walked to the cross, he took the enmity, the hostility, the anger, the pride, the arrogance, the adultery, the abortions, the lies, the cheating. He took all of it of all believers on his shoulders. And it was on that cross that God's anger that I deserve, and you know that I do. Maybe you don't know that you deserve it as well. God's anger that we deserve was poured out on Christ. And that means that even though you are an enemy of God, Christ died so you could become his ally. But more than just his ally, his friend, more than just his friend, God's own son or daughter. 
It's an exchange, do you understand? Amen. It's an exchange. It's a substitute. Christ has substituted himself for you. It should be us on that cross, but instead Christ has gone there. Why? Why did he do this? Is it because you're so good looking? And you are. What a view I have. Is it because you're so holy and religious? After all, you're here on a Sunday morning. Is it because you're so righteous? Is it because of your citizenship? Is it because of your cultural heritage? While we were still sinners. This did not happen for the perfect and the pure and the righteous. There are none. It's a very short list. This didn't happen for the religious. This sacrifice was not like the Anzac sacrifice where there's a good person dying for good people. This sacrifice was the only perfect person dying for his enemies. That ugliness, that repugnance, that horror at the center of the cross that I talked about before, that is not found in the beauty of Jesus Christ. He is perfect and pure. There is no stain upon him. It is found on the sin that we did that was on his shoulders. It's nothing like Anzac Bay. It's nothing like it. I want you to imagine Auschwitz in World War II, the, the horrific uh, concentration camp the, the Nazis did. And I want you to imagine that in that concentration camp, there is a Jewish prisoner who is a tradesman. And because he's a tradesman, he's a very skilled tradesman, um, he isn't killed. Okay? They have to keep him alive because the Nazis need him in order to run the camp. And yet, despite the fact that he's not killed, he is still treated with absolute brutality, worse than they treat dogs. In fact, his spouse, his children are murdered in front of him. And not just by some random, they're murdered by this one guy. This one guard in particular grew up in the same town as this, as this prisoner. And he's got a special hatred for this prisoner. So he treats him worse than you treat a sick dog. He just absolutely hates him. And yet he's still kept alive because of what he can do. Anyway, it gets to the end of 1944, December 1944, and word starts to come through that the Soviet, the Red Army, are going through Poland and eastern Germany and liberating all these camps. So the Jewish prisoners, as you can imagine, this is true, by the way, started to get very, very excited. They started to get very, very pumped up that freedom was coming. The prison guards, however, would get very, very nervous. They started trying to kill all the prisoners in time for the Red Army to come through because they wanted all the prisoners dead. And yet by January the 6th, 1945... The Soviet army, the feared Red Army with a special hatred for the Nazis, drove through into Auschwitz. All the Jewish prisoners were ecstatic that freedom was finally here. All except one. Snapshot, if you will, this picture of this Jewish prisoner, mistreated, widowed. And he is looking at this prison guard, the one who was treated him with such contempt and disgust. And this prison guard is now for the first time showing himself in his true light, a terrified young man, there with his head in his hands, realizing that death is about to happen. What would you do? Well, maybe if you were this Jewish prisoner, you'd grab him, wouldn't you, if you could, with the muscles you had left and drag him out for death. But I want you to imagine that instead of doing that, this Jewish prisoner goes over to the prison guard and he unbuttons his tunic and he takes it off him. And he takes off his pajamas, you know, the striped pajamas, And they swap shirts. And I want you to imagine that that Jewish prisoner gets the hat and he puts it on his head. And he walks out to the Red Army. Can you imagine as he looks down, he sees the epaulets and his lapels, the swastika. What it would have meant for him to have this symbol of absolute hatred now on him, representing him. 
And he walks out to the Red Army with his arms put up. But before he can even outstretch them, a bullet hits him. The prison guard, there now wearing the clothes of the people he once hated, stands and walks out, liberated and free. Can you imagine such a scenario? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's absolutely obscene and absurd. And yet, my friends, on that cross, Christ did something far more ridiculous, far more beyond the realm of our possible imagination. Christ put on the clothing of your hostility and sin. And he went to the cross. Why? Look at the the final part of this reading in verse 9 to 10. Have a look. Why did he do it? Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by God's wrath through him? Why? He did it so that you could be justified. And that word's a legal term. You could stand in the dock before God and be found not guilty. Because you are wearing the clothing of Christ. You are clean because of what Christ has done. So not only have you been justified, you've been saved from the anger God has. But not only that, for if while we were God's enemies, we've been reconciled. And that word reconciled means brought to peace with. My friends, through what Christ has done on the cross, the war is over. The war I lived my entire life fighting. Of myself trying to be the king of everything. Myself trying to demand superiority, trying to demand authority over everything that I did, doing what I wanted, when I wanted, with who I wanted, however I wanted. The war that I had my entire life was finished by that man 2,000 years ago walking to the cross and saying, it is finished. And what that means for you is that if you were here today and you've never realized before that peace with God is possible and it's only possible for you through what Jesus has done, if you were here today and you've never realized that you can stand justified, saved and reconciled, then that means it does not matter what you've done. It does not matter where you've been. It does not matter what you've seen. That Christ did all of this for you, not because you were so impressive, not because you had to earn it, but while you were the prison guard, while you were a sinner. My friends, my prayer for this morning has been that this morning, for some of you, it would be that moment where you realize, man, I I need this. I want this. My friends, Jesus Christ did not die for you because you're good. Jesus Christ died for you because you're not. The Anzacs who we remember, and we are right to remember them, they made that sacrifice for a good object, for a good reason, for a good purpose. But it's nothing like the cross. Jesus did not do what he did for good people. He did it for wretches like us, so we might be children of God. My friends, I'm going to pray now and I'm going to pray and just speak to God and ask that if that is you today, that if you would like to come to know him, to be called his child, that you would do so. So I ask everyone here to bow your heads and let's shut our eyes and let's talk to God. Father God, thank you so much for what your son Jesus has done. Lord, thank you so much for your son Jesus that he walked to this earth and died, not because we are good, but because we are not.
Lord, there's men and women here this morning who are holding so much, so much in their past, so much in their present. And Lord, there's men and women here who have realized now for the first time that your son Jesus has died for them and taken their crimes, taken their sin. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. And give us strength in our lives to follow you, to be your children, and to live with you as our King. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, the risen King Jesus Christ. Amen.